Hi everyone, I'm Ben Tapper and this is Invisible Truths. This is a podcast for anyone who carries burdens that feel too heavy to bear, questions too vulnerable to openly discuss, or pain that you're certain no one else will understand. Even more than that though, this is a space to acknowledge and explore the invisible truths within each of us. If you're still interested, let's get started. All right, everyone, welcome back to another week of the Invisible Truths podcast. I'm your host, Ben Tapper, and this week I'm here with a special friend of mine, Amanda Thrasher. Amanda is a psychotherapist, a yoga and fitness instructor, and she identifies as a mystic Quaker. Uh, And so I'm just thrilled and floored for the perspective that Amanda is going to bring to the show this week. So Amanda, thanks for being here. I'm glad to be here and I'm really honored that you asked me to be here today. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so we'll jump in with our first question. Uh, one of the, the softball questions that I like to get my guests. <laughs> um, and that is, what are you learning in this phase of your life? Well, it's interesting that you would ask that because I'm learning right now in this moment because it's really vulnerable for me to be here and it Mm. takes some courage to talk about the ways that I'm growing and learning. And so this is part of my journey of growth that I've been on for some time. I'd say I've been learning about the relationship between vulnerability and courage throughout my entire adult life. Mm. But in the past five years or so, that's really increased for me. And uh, it especially increased after a big turning point in my life, which was a separation and divorce. That uh, divorce, I imagine, is a pretty difficult thing for anyone to go through. Um, and, and you went through it fairly young. So can you talk about what, um, what kind of courage it required to not even to take the step, but to kind of weather the storm that I imagine? Because divorce isn't necessarily a quick process, from what I understand, at least. Right, right. You know, mm-hmm. and so... So I imagine there's either a storm or a series of storms that it can feel like you're going through as you're walking through that process and stepping into the unknown. So what is that like? What kind of courage did that kind of create or call forth for you? Hmm. That brings to mind this moment. I was living in California in this community, somewhat in the country, in the mountains. Hmm. And it was in the heart of some of the biggest struggle that I experienced in my former relationship. And I sought out a therapist for the first time. And I was driving up the mountain to this therapist's cottage. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was sort of an ominous drive, you know, a 15-minute drive up this beautiful uh, landscape near a river. And I arrive at the door not quite knowing what to expect. Mm -hmm. And I step in the room. And at the time, I was on limited income. So I I tried to barter with the therapist. I said, you know, I work at this farm would you, you know, do the session in exchange for the food that I'm mm-hmm. that I could give to you? And she said, Well, I don't really think we could do that. So in my mind in that moment I said, Okay, I have this one session probably with her mm-hmm. and I might need to go in a different direction, find a different source of support, but one session. Mm-hmm. I left that session with one piece of advice. She said to me, You need to ask your husband to move out of the cabin that we were living in together. And I was absolutely floored by that suggestion. Mm. I'd never thought of it before. It felt so scary to do that, and it felt like something that I couldn't possibly do. Mm. 
And she wasn't asking me to do that in order to end the relationship. It was a way of separating in order to be together in a new way, in a newly formed way. Mm -hmm. So the idea was that each of us could begin to build our individual selves more strongly Mm -hmm. and then begin to work towards something together again because we had gotten lost um, in each Mm -hmm. other. We were married very young. I was 19 when we were engaged, okay. and we didn't fully really know ourselves yet. So that that step was to pull apart so we could come back together. Mm. So what was it like um, when you asked him? Uh, how did that go over? Did that, uh, yeah, just what mm-hmm. was that like leading up to it for you? Yeah, leading up to it, I, I thought about it for days. I was, I think, a bit angry with the therapist that she would suggest mm. that. And I was scared about the possibility. Um, It seemed like such a big risk Mm -hmm. in a relationship that was really, really brought about a lot of security, um, even through the tumultuous times. And so I struggled with what to do about it. But I finally got the courage up because I knew that we couldn't remain where we were Mm -hmm. with one another, that that wasn't healthy and that something needed to change. And so... So the conversation went in the direction of we, we decided to do that. We decided to separate and live in separate cabins, but in the same community for a while. Yeah, I think we touched on the, the courage part of that. Was there a lesson that you learned about vulnerability in the midst of that? I think that the vulnerability most came from what could be on the other side that it took courage to be able to ask for what felt right. Because deep down that did feel right when I took some time to really mull over it. Mm. I thought I, that really resonated with where we were both at in the moment. But the vulnerability I knew was about to come from mm. there. Because I had never lived on my own. And I, um, it was a really big step to say, there's a possibility that this could go in many different directions. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to step into this unknown, mm. and that's very risky. Mm. And, and that has been from those, that moment on, and there were moments before that in relationship, but now in this second life, I think it's Rilke, the poet, who says that there are a thousand lifetimes mm. or within a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like I'm on the second or third lifetime, that mm. post-divorce there's been this reemergence of myself. Mm-hmm. And there has been a lot of vulnerability and courage and stepping into the unknown. And I'll say that with the privilege that I have as growing up in a white middle-class family Mm. that was very supportive and is very supportive, the stepping out and risking and stepping into the unknown, if I fail, I'm going to fall into a peaceful lake with a life raft, (laughs) you know, and that's not everyone's experience. So for a lot of people, the option of risk is, is just... It's not really a viable option. Mm. But for me, I have been able to step into the unknown in multiple ways and really find a lot of growth in that. Yeah. Yeah, I I appreciate you naming that. It's one thing I think we often, we forget to to appreciate the perspectives and context that others are coming from. Um, And so it's helpful to have that named. I also love what you said about, or I guess what this poet said about having a thousand lifetimes, mm-hmm. because that, that resonates with me. I have often said that I feel like I've already lived multiple lives in one, and I'm, I'm 31 now, 30 fun, I think it's just <laughs> Yes, 30 fun. <laughs> um, 
but it already feels like I'm on probably my fourth lifetime. Mm. Um, and it's just, each one is drastically different than the last one. And I find myself having to renegotiate at the start of each new lifetime what I'm keeping from the previous lifetime that mm. is going to continue to serve me, continue to grow with me, mm. and what I'm learning from, but leaving in the past lifetime, you mm. know, and that that's a hard thing to negotiate. And I think it usually takes me several years into the next lifetime before I really get a grip mm. on on the difference between those things. Um, so as you transition through lifetimes, have you experienced, do you go through a similar process of trying to figure out what you're going to keep, what uh, you'll learn from, um, what is growing with you, what isn't growing with you, what is that like for you? Yeah, I think that's a great way that you phrased it. What... Um what to keep and what to give away to mm-hmm. that there's or what to let go of maybe um, is the second part. Yes, I find that my 30s especially mm-hmm. is a lot of negotiating mm-hmm. that and and looking at if, if I do say this is my third lifetime, you know, perhaps my um, childhood and teenage years was the first lifetime, mm-hmm. my 20s, second lifetime, this is a third. Um, what do I want to keep from the first and second? The first and second lifetimes that I had were pretty different. I was working towards a different goal. And so now I think for me, it's a little bit of an integration of both of those lives. Mm-hmm. And and what is, um, maybe not the most challenging, but what is a, a growing edge in terms of living into vulnerability for you right now or courage? Mm-hmm. Well, as I said, when we first started talking, this mm-hmm. podcast is mm-hmm. vulnerable for me. So I a growth edge for me is really learning about the private and the public. So I've, I've spent mm. a lot of my life pretty introverted, keeping to myself. And when I was married, really kind of being on the back burner as far as not having to really step out and really create much or be myself in realms that mm. felt maybe more uncomfortable or out of my, out mm-hmm. of my comfort zone, especially being married to someone who was very extroverted. Mm-hmm. I often think that in relationships, sometimes we carry different personality aspects mm. for the other person. Yeah. And and now I'm carrying all of those personality aspects in a way and living into mm. maybe the more assertive side, the more um, gregarious side, the more open and public side. So I've been learning how to speak my truth a little mm-hmm. louder, mm-hmm. Um, whether it be through writing or speaking. Um, I took an improv class for the first time this year. That's awesome. Um, just because it felt so outside of my comfort zone. Yeah. And I knew there was something to be learned in it, learned from it. And I've been on a few solo camping trips mm-hmm. recently just to kind of live into that fear a little bit and live into the, the untruth, I guess, that I can't do a lot of what I did as a married person, mm-hmm. that I can still do those things. It might just look differently. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like like what, what what would be an example? Is camping an example? Yeah, or? camping okay. is an example, right? Yeah. yeah. Of course, there's much more safety in numbers yeah. when it comes to being out in the wilderness. But there's also the wilderness of the city is just as dangerous in a lot of mm. ways. And so learning how to step into that world and become more comfortable with the fear. One of the things that I admire most about you is your courage, actually. Um, so Amanda and I have kind of lived near each other for like the last three years and that we're in the same space in CTS. Um, but we didn't actually, probably actually have a real conversation until over the summer. At, yeah, very um, recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mystic Soul Conference. 
And I remember at that conference, the, f the final night of the conference, um, me, you, and a friend of ours went to the dance party they were having, mm -hmm. right? And you were just so free, just kind of dancing by yourself, enjoying the music. Um, and that's something that's really difficult for me to do personally. Um, and so I just, I saw that and I was like, man, I had so much and still do uh, respect for you and appreciation for like, to me what felt like it had to have taken an immense amount of courage, you know, mm -hmm. and sense of personal liberty and freedom to just, to let your body be in that space and let it show up as it wanted to show up, regardless mm -hmm. of what anyone else was doing, saying or thinking, you were just there. And, and it, it looked beautiful. And so I just want to name that as uncomfortable as you may feel in this space. Like I see mm. that courage. I've seen it manifested physically. And mm. it, it, it's, it was so cool to see. And it gave me something to continue to aspire to. Mm. Mm. Thanks for noticing that. Yeah. It's been a realm that all my life feels more comfortable and grounding to me mm. um, and free. Mm. Though my relationship with dance has definitely evolved over time, growing up it was paired with competition, and mm -hmm. so it's been a journey to to separate that and create instead a spiritual understanding of dance. And so I think probably that evening you were seeing some of the remnants of that first life where I was learning about dance as competition, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then this newly emerged uh, self that dances freely and sees it as mystical and beautiful and spiritual mm -hmm. and uh, a way to connect with God and with others. Yeah, That is so profound. I think one of the reasons dance has always been difficult for me is, is or I shouldn't say dance is difficult because I have rhythm. It's the expression of that rhythm that is difficult. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I think it's a disconnection from my body that mm -hmm. I have historically had. Mm -hmm. and. When you're disconnected from your body, it is hard then to feel comfortable enough to let your body exist in a space as it wants to. Like mm -hmm. there's an automatic kind of shutting down of whatever mode of expression it wants to kind of occupy. Um, and so I'm wondering if you have felt more of a, a connection with your body throughout your, your life, if that kind mm -hmm. of makes dance as mysticism a bit easier to experience. Mm -hmm. I'd say that's been a growth for me too in okay. in the second phase of my life yeah. or the second or third lifetime yeah as the years have continued I do feel much more in touch with my body and especially through training in graduate school mm -hmm. um, in psychotherapy which really is focused on that mind-body connection where our feelings are really manifested in the body mm -hmm. all the time so mm -hmm. all the time we're having a relationship with the body but it's just more distant at times than mm -hmm. others so that was really an opportunity for me to learn about that closeness and so what what else has your psychotherapy and counseling training taught you about yourself and I'm specifically thinking about maybe your own spirituality and in, in this mm -hmm. kind of Quaker mysticism you know that, that influences you uh, a lot of people might hear that and think you know something as science-based as psychotherapy is runs counter mm. to uh, mystic spirituality mm. um, and, and so what would you say to that how have you what, what's the integration of those things been like for you mm. so I think that the process of going through graduate school and learning about the connection between spirituality and the physical body and when I say physical body I mean emotions and our reactions to them has led me to believe that to be closer to God is to really be closer to 
um, the human experience, mm. my human experience and the experience of other humans, which are really intimately connected. So in dancing, that is a form of worship for me. That is a form of prayer and meditation. And to silo the body from a spiritual practice is not fulfilling for me. I know that it's something that, that's something that was definitely present within an evangelical Christian context in, in some regards. There was always a bit of dance and singing that was a part of that, but I, I think that my relationship to that has shifted and evolved over time to where I really see it all as a deepening of that human experience. And, and the more that I know myself and my own emotional reactions to experiences that's really intertwined with my relationship with others and that's my relationship with spirit. Mm. That resonates deeply with me um, because I've, I found the same to be true. As I've gotten more connected with my body, um, I've also gotten more connected with spirit and others. Like it's all intertwined in ways that I, I don't fully understand. But the, the other wrinkle that I'm finding for myself is the way that trauma affects that interconnection. Mm. Uh, it affects my knowing, right? And so one of the ways that I, I know I'm about to make the right decision is like a gut level of peaceful intuition, right? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, it's a bodily thing and a kind of a spiritual intuitive thing. Yeah. But I've noticed my trauma, when the trauma effect kicks in, it disrupts that. And so mm. it introduces and infuses a sense of anxiety and a sense of fear uh, into that mix and can make it really confusing for me to know which step to take and which path to take. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if you can talk some about how you understand and maybe you've even experienced um, the effects that trauma can have in that body-spirit connection and, and what work you do or recommend others do to, to begin to kind of unpack that um, and, and work through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very real experience for that trauma to disrupt intuition. Mm. And so I think it's, for me and maybe for many others, it's a lifelong process of becoming more connected with intuition. And it's not just mm. that individual trauma that we experience, but the trauma of just living in civilization mm. and society, which marginalizes and where consumerism and capitalism is prime the the human spiritual self is kind of pushed to the side and so yeah. there's a, a way in which we always have to be alert and on guard mm -hmm. um, in some ways and so in some of us more than others so one of the practices that I try to do and that I hopefully will continue to do more and more is to notice when I feel triggered, when I feel that kind of fight-flight response, mm -hmm. um, which usually overtakes my intuition, mm. and sit with it and ask it what it's doing. Mm. <laughs> so it's a really relational kind of kind of experience where I say okay and, and sometimes in, it's in my head or out loud you know I'll talk to the fear and mm. and say you know I know you've been there protecting me for a very long time and what is it that you want right now mm. and how are you protecting me now and then kind of just give it some attention because I think often we push it to the side and resist it because it's uncomfortable it gets in the way but really it's just going to keep coming up mm. for us when that happens and so it was actually both a, a former therapist and, and current spiritual director who said to me, who taught me the importance of inviting emotions in as guests and that they aren't 
me they really are guests they're just visiting and they're going to pass you know they're very impermanent so I'm going to invite that fear in and I'm going to ask about it and and maybe sip sip some tea with it you know her maybe I should you know personify her and yeah and then I'll say okay it's it's time for you to leave now and I'm going to sit with a deeper guest Mm. that intuition that is profound and a good reminder it's so fascinating to me how often i will learn a lesson for a while and then forget it and then have to be reminded of it yeah (laughs) so it just happened i was like oh yes Uh i remember doing that okay Mm -hmm. uh so thank you for reminding me of something that i had Mm -hmm. uh, forgotten and i love the imagery of emotions as guests i i often think of them as such permanent things you know Mm -hmm. and such defining things um that it's it's hard to remember that they come and that they go and that they're actually pointing to something deeper than just themselves, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be can be really tough to to think about. I, I first encountered the idea of an emotion as a guest in the book on grief and grieving. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. As I was wrestling with the death of my father, one of the things that that book talked about is inviting depression in as a house guest, right? Mm. A guest that had some work to do and when its work was completed, it would leave. Mm. Um, and so just to treat it like that rather than to push it to the side or resist it. And so while that's easier for me to do with depression or sadness, when it comes to like anxiety, for instance, that is just uh, much more difficult because it, mm. it's a different charge, I think, in my body. Mm. You know, certain emotions have different electrical charges, at least for me, or different energetic charges. Mm-hmm. And, and when it's a really high frequency charge, it's more difficult to kind of receive it as a guest. It, mm. uh, the knee-jerk reaction is to just push it to the side mm. or even do something like deep breathing so that I can try to get it out of my system as if I can mm. breathe it away, you know? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you're right, it, it always comes back. Mm-hmm. And then I've got to deal with it all over again. Mm. And so that, that's a good reminder to, to reframe, you know, the mm. situation and, and to reframe how mm. I, I interact with those emotions. And fear and anxiety may be the one that is the most uncomfortable and the one that's evolutionarily the deepest rooted mm-hmm. because it protects us from you know tigers and mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it, it really is there for a lot of reasons but we it, it comes up in environments and in ways that mm-hmm. we don't necessarily need it now mm-hmm. and it's really rooted in a lot of societal oppression too so the more I think that individuals sit with that fear and communities sit with that fear and invite it in the more used to it we become and the more we're able to talk to speak to one another from a place that's a little bit different um Mm. or you know maybe fear's still there in the room but it's not as large of a guest it's um there's not there's not as many guests so when we um started the conversation you said that you one of the lessons you're learning is the the difference i think between courage and vulnerability the relationship the relationship between between courage and vulnerability okay Mm -hmm. so talk more about what the relationship is like what are you learning Mm -hmm. are they a married couple? Are they conflictual? Like, <laughs> oh, I like you, that. What yeah, are you learning yeah. about them? Uh-huh. Well, I've, um, I'm really grateful for Brene Brown. Mm-hmm. I've learned a lot from her, and I know she's very popular now, and mm-hmm. I think that's for good reason. The first thing that popped in my mind is they're more siblings. I think there's some, some mutuality there. There's not one that's parenting the other, okay. but they're kind of always there together maybe they're more like twins Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know I'm an only child so I actually (laughs) don't know what so that's where I went you know so maybe that speaks to my kind of distance from them my growth into Mm. courage and vulnerability but it takes as Brene Brown often says you know it takes so much courage to be vulnerable it's Mm. it's easier to hide behind 
small talk, the everyday, the daily, the busyness, that mm. sort of thing. So to be able to to open up. And I'm actually reading Esther Perel right now who talks about that that vulnerability doesn't always need to be through verbal mm-hmm. um, experience, that there is a way in which, you know, even dancing, as you were mm-hmm. saying, that kind of vulnerability is important too, that it doesn't necessarily have to be just verbal. Yeah. I love Esther Perel too, by the way. She mm-hmm. is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Her, uh, her book, Mating in Captivity, is really good. Yeah. One of the lessons I'm learning is about the difference. So I was, I was sitting in a counseling session last week, and my counselor said that there's a difference between authenticity and vulnerability. Mm. And I had never thought about that before because one of my biggest things, my biggest um, theme in life is to be an authentic individual, right? Mm -hmm. But she's right. I can be authentic without actually being vulnerable. Mm. Um, And in the way I understand the difference, maybe you'll have a different way to look at it. But the way I understand it is authenticity for me is about the flow of information uh, how much information I allow. Like if I'm the White House, it's about how many documents I'm declassifying, right? Mm. But vulnerability is about giving someone um, a, a ID badge to get in, into and outside of the building and into and outside of every room whenever they want, right? Mm. It's not just having the, the intellectual information, it's having access to um, the security areas, having access to the places within that are supposed to be closed off. It's mm. knowing kind of some of the emotions, knowing the weak points. That's what is, is difficult um, for me to do. And so I've, I've been practicing not just being authentic, not mm. just talking about things that other people are, are uncomfortable talking about, <laughs> but also being in spaces in which I, I could be hurt, right? So like mm. an example, and I shared this in the last podcast as well. Two days ago at work was a, a rough day and some stuff I had been carrying just kind of hit all at once. Mm. And I realized that I needed to cry. And normally when I need to cry, I either shut it down or I can't. Mm. Um, but I, I sensed it was coming and so I grabbed some Kleenex and went into the men's bathroom. And I knew I'd be alone because there's only like three guys that work in this office mm. and two of them I think were out of the office. So it was pretty much just gonna be me. Mm. And, and, and I went in there and I cried in the stall for about 15 minutes at work. Mm. And then I came out and I had conversations with both the president of our organization and my supervisor about what I was going through. Things that I would not normally have done, but they were exercises in being vulnerable and in, in talking to people when I didn't feel strong, when I didn't feel charismatic, when I didn't feel like um, the rock star that I expect everybody to think that I am. Like mm. when I was low and, and just not in a great place. Mm. Um, so, so that for me was an exercise and more than just being authentic, more than just naming I'm not feeling good, but, but being willing to show it was uncomfortable. And uh, thankfully, they're two people I can trust and so it was received well. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so I say all that to say that is kind of a concrete example of how I'm trying to live into being vulnerable and not just authentic. And I'm doing it in friendships too, sharing things I, I wouldn't normally want to share for fear of rejection or... Um, for fear of losing the relationship or, or, or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've said a lot. How do you understand the relationship between authenticity and, and vulnerability in your own life? Mm. What you said really resonated with me that there's ways in which you can be authentic but not vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I think there's some control within authenticity that mm. happens, whereas vulnerability maybe the authenticity that leads a person to vulnerability, there's some control in Mm -hmm. that or some ability to really manage. But once 
we step into vulnerability, often there's a lot less control. Mm -hmm. The vulnerability itself is sort of like the crying, you know, it's, it is uncontrollable. It's messy. It's, um, yeah, it doesn't look perfect at all. And it doesn't look professional at all. Right. There's a sense of that kind of vulnerability is not always welcome in the workplace Mm -hmm. or in the marketplace. You know, these, these areas that we've kind of sectioned off as, um, this is more sterile and authenticity is welcomed, but only if it's a put together Mm -hmm. sense of authenticity. And how do you imagine the the interplay of courage between authenticity and vulnerability? Then, like, mm. how, how does the the twin of vulnerability come into play? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that the twin of vulnerability, courage, is there, kind of just gently nudging mm. vulnerability forward, saying, "No, step off the cliff. Mm. It when you fall, yeah. it's not going to be too far. Mm. You know, you don't want to step." It, sometimes with clients, especially with teenage clients. In my therapy practice, I, we would create this diagram, which I know is very widely used, mm-hmm. um, and it's sort of like a target. And in the middle is your safe zone, your really comfortable mm-hmm. zone. And the second ring is mm, where do you feel some comfort, but yeah, it's a little bit challenging. Yeah. And then the outside is like the panic zone, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think there's a way in which courage, courage can push us into the panic zone, but authenticity maybe comes in and moderates it and says, okay, you're not going to go into the panic zone necessarily. I'll, I'll moderate this for you. So courage just pushes you into that gentle middle ground where there's some, some comfort still. And that looks so different for every person, especially depending on trauma and mm-hmm. um, upbringing and privilege and all of that. But yeah, could, could we just step into that mm-hmm. second ring for a while? Yeah. As you, as you talked about falling, you and I were texting yesterday uh, about the similarities between the pictures and our, our blogs, kind mm-hmm. of the main pictures, right? Mm-hmm. And and one of the things you mentioned uh, as we were talking is being willing to step off a cliff and learning to fly. And and I was struck by that because in my mind, when I thought of stepping off the cliff or stepping over the ledge, I immediately went to and being willing to fall, right? Mm-hmm. And so I was I was struck by wow, she she went to flying and I went to falling. What does that mean? And then it also occurred to me that there's kind of the same thing. Like, to, to learn to fly, you have to learn to also mm. fall as well. Like, mm-hmm. no bird leaves the nest and just is soaring immediately, right? There's a little mm-hmm. bit of a drop, and then they figure out how the wings work, and then they'll fly mm-hmm. a little and drop a little, and it's it's an uncomfortable dance, mm-hmm. right? And so as you think about this, this third life that you're in and eventually moving into the fourth, how do you imagine or how do you hope you navigate the dance between flying and falling for yourself? Mm. You know, the one tattoo I have is it started out so that there's a verse in the New Testament about the provision of God in Matthew, Mm -hmm. where Jesus talks about even the sparrows are taken care of. And so that is something that's in the back of my mind often when I think about provision as I move forward in my life Mm -hmm. and the relationship between security and risk as I take steps and looking at the privilege that I have and do I become more upwardly mobile? Do I stay where I'm at? What What's enough mm. in my life? And so the tattoo also represents to me, so it's a sparrow on a branch and freedom and stability is what comes to mind. There's this branch and, there's, and the branch kind of represents this stable home, whatever might be comforting to bring with mm. the bird. And it's it's a thin enough branch that the bird can take it with mm-hmm. as it flies and maybe even make a nest with it. It represents a lot 
from those previous lives. So from the first and second life, like I really, I take with me that wisdom. You know, each each phase of my life, I can look back and reflect and understand a little bit more as to why I'm here and, and what has led me here and what wisdom I've acquired from those times. And so I really think it's just gonna take multiple lifetimes to fully fly, you know, and I, I actually would like to become more comfortable with the falling and then learning to fly from like maybe a lower place each time, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and really trusting that I'm still going to be able to fly, even if I fall, Mm -hmm. that even if it's all the way to the ground, that there's going to be maybe a greater height that comes from that. I'm going to return to a question that I asked you about a month ago when we hung out. Um, I don't remember what your answer was, but I remember it being dope. Uh, (laughs) The question is, at this phase of your life, as you think about courage, vulnerability, um, all that you're living into, what do you, Amanda Thrasher, crave? Hmm. Oh, I do remember that question. Mm-hmm. I crave connection, and I think, I think that may be a universal craving, mm-hmm. and it looks different for every person and community, but deeper connection with the divine, which for me means deeper connection with nature, mm-hmm deeper connection with self and deeper deeper connection with others yeah and and deeper connection with place to like to really be rooted mm. um, wherever I'm at knowing that there's the unknown you know maybe tomorrow I'll move elsewhere where I'll have a different job or a different uh, different relationship or different way of being in life but to really be rooted in that moment I think I think I also crave trust you know mm. that I think one of the classes at CTS that I took, I'm just about to promo CTS, but um, <laughs> uh, is the God Images class. Mm-hmm. And in that class, we talked a lot about the relationship between fear and trust. Mm-hmm. And I think one of my life paths is to live more fully into trust than fear. Mm-hmm. And so, and that goes along with that sense of provision too, and taking the branch with me and in mm-hmm. a deeper sense of intuition, a mm-hmm. lot of what we've been talking about. Yeah, so I'd say connection and trust, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, One of the ways that I like to uh, typically end these podcasts is for my guest to leave the listener with one or two things that they can reflect on or or take with them throughout the week to kind of come back to the themes that we discussed. Mm -hmm. And so as you think about vulnerability and courage, as you think about trusting um, versus fear, as you think about connection between body and spirit, Um, What is something, a practice, a a quote, a a thought that you would leave with the audience to help them to continue to kind of tie some of these themes together and absorb them into their daily lives and routines? Mm. So the Quaker part of me loves queries. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I usually end my blog with questions just because there's so many questions to continually Mm -hmm. live into. And that's another Rilke. I guess I'm really into Rilke today, Mm -hmm. but another uh, Rilke quote. Um, So the questions I'll leave you with are, what guests have you in your house right now? Which one is the most terrifying? And how can you relate to the guest that's the most terrifying? Those are phenomenal questions, if I do say so myself. (laughs) (laughs) Those are wonderful. So um, 
Amanda, thank you for being on the podcast this week. Um, if people want to connect with you online or on social media, are there ways that they can do that? Or if they want to follow your blog, for instance? Sure. Um, I do have a Facebook page and I have a blog, which has kind of been put on hold for the last few months, but I will hopefully begin again. And so that, mm, it's funny <laughs> that I say that because the name of the blog is And I Begin <laughs> uh, WordPress. So um, feel free to engage with that. Okay, mm -hmm. and I'll make sure to post links in the episode description. So okay. thank, thank you. Thank you so much, Ben. It's been an honor to, to talk with you, and I feel really energized and uplifted. Mm, awesome. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you for listening to episode 19 of the Invisible Truths podcast. If you enjoyed my interview with Amanda, please take a moment to check out her information in the episode description. Also, if you haven't done so already, please like, leave a comment, and subscribe to this podcast. Uh, if you especially enjoyed it, leave a five-star rating so it's easier for others to find it. If you are not a Patreon member, you're going to miss out on the awesome video interview that I did with Amanda after recording this podcast. If you are curious and want to hear us talk about rom-coms, among other things, then consider becoming a Patreon member and getting access to that hilarious interview. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Invisible Truths podcast. Until next week. I'm Ben Tapper.